You are listening to episode 41 of the Lewis and Kyle show with Jordan Harbinger. Everybody thinks like, oh, it must have been so hard to get Kobe Bryant. No, I got an email one day that said, hey, do you want to interview Kobe Bryant? And I was like, obviously, yes. <laughs> uh, when? And they were like, great. How about in two weeks? And that was it. That was like the easiest. I've never. It takes me longer to get my parents on the phone half the time than it did to go down and fl- sit in front of Kobe Bryant for an hour. Hello and welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. If you're new to our podcast, welcome. We're excited to have you. Lewis and I are students at the University of Alabama, and we're on a journey to deconstruct success stories of interesting entrepreneurs, investors, and people making a big impact on their world. We're taking what we learn and applying those lessons in our own lives and sharing the best of what we learn with you, our audience. Our guest today, Jordan Harbinger, has been podcasting for 14 years. His most recent show, The Jordan Harbinger Show, has become one of the fastest growing podcasts in the world. It was awarded Best of 2018 by Apple, and it has over 6 million downloads per month. And it features a wide array of guests like Kobe Bryant, Dennis Rodman, T.I., Tony Hawk, Susan Milan, Simon Sinek, Eric Schmidt, and Neil deGrasse Tyson, to name just a few. He also interviews mob bosses, criminals, and other interesting people. He regularly writes for Newsweek and has an awesome online course about networking. Lewis, what did you think about the show? Yeah, I think you listed a few of his uh, A-lister guests, but I he's also brought on just about every author we've ever referenced. Uh, Ryan Holiday, Cal Newport, Robert Greene, Alex Benayan from The Third Door, all these people we've brought up a million times. He's interviewed all them as well. So super cool to be, you know, one degree of separation away from those authors. Uh, but in this interview, we kind of just followed our curiosities. We really just kind of picked Jordan's brain about the things we're trying to accomplish, right? Reaching out to guests that are notoriously difficult to reach interviewing people with extremely diverse and interesting backgrounds. How do you know what to talk about? How do you choose what to ask them when they could make an interesting conversation about just about anything? And also how does he, you know, project advice from all sorts of different extreme people and recommend what you should follow and what you should ignore and how to reconcile those kinds of things. We had an awesome time picking this brain and I hope you enjoy listening in. Uh, So without any further introduction, I hope you enjoy your episode with Jordan Harbinger. Hey Jordan, this is super exciting for us to chat with you. We kind of build our podcast as we started it to be able to connect with our dream mentors who were kind of previously out of reach before we had any sort of reason for them to say yes to a, an hour long conversation with us. And uh, here we are. So as aspiring podcasters, you pretty much fit the bill pretty perfectly as a dream mentor, dream uh, conversation to have. So we're really excited to welcome you onto the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me on guys. I appreciate it. I always like to do sort of like new shows where people are taking it seriously because I mean, look, I was there and I remember inviting people onto the Jordan Harbinger show and like 12 years ago or the show that would become the Jordan Harbinger show and people being like, what's a podcast? Don't ever text me again. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, okay, cool, cool. Yeah, How long is this going to take before these things catch on? Luckily it's caught on and we've had some good luck so far, uh, including yeah. yourself. But so I was listening to your podcast, your, your most recent podcast. I think her name's Celeste. Uh, yeah. And she was talking about um, how when two people are having a conversation, their brain waves align with each other. And uh, I, I want to know if you think that uh, a virtual uh, conversation has that same effect and whether or not you think that virtual communication is like reducing our capacity for empathy. Because I know she quoted, you know, it's 40% lower than it was in the year 2000. I think there's a clear, distinct um, theme with the, with the last 20 years, which is more communication virtually, especially in 2020. Um, 
So what do you think about that? Yeah, the you're talking about Celeste Headley. She's an NPR journalist. That's episode 423 of the Jordan Harbinger show for people who want to go and listen for themselves. And yeah, the, it sounds a little bit like woo-woo crystal healing when you say uh, people's brainwaves get in sync. But I think what she meant by that was, you know, when we're talking, we are on... It, it, it literally is brainwaves, but I don't know what kind or any of this necessarily the science behind that. Mm-hmm. I would say, though, that almost certainly looking at uh, having looked at the science in the past, I don't remember it being anything like my brain is telepathically communicating with your brain. It really is the fact that we are focused on one another and talking about something similar and having a conversation and not in conflict and things like that. So I would imagine that virtual communication like we're having right now does pretty much the exact same thing. Now, does it have every benefit of in-person communication? Definitely not. You know, we're missing a lot of nonverbal communication. You can't even see what I'm doing with my hands. You can't see if I'm fidgeting with my feet. Uh, you have no idea. Uh, the temperature in the room even could affect, you know, my mood and things like that. You're you're not picking up on a lot of different things. Even microphones and digital media, the way that Zoom compresses audio, leaves out bass and different types of frequencies that we don't necessarily know what that does to our brain. So we really have no idea what's missing, which is a little scary, which means that as per pretty much everything from food to medication, uh, natural is often better than the imitation, right? So I do think that virtual communication leaves a little bit to be desired. But look, at the end of the day, if it's a choice between being isolated, not being able to see or talk to anyone and (laughs) using Zoom, uh, I'm going to take Zoom or Squadcast or whatever over that instead. You know, I don't want to... We're in a pandemic right now. You know, I think, though, to your question, um, not necessarily about the pandemic, I think, you know, now that people are working together and we're saying, hey, I'm never going to go back to offices. We're going to get rid of our Google campus or whatever it is that that's going on. We're going to see long term that there's going to be some team dysfunction or maybe like less company loyalty because is it really different if I'm working in my kitchen for Google or if I'm working in my kitchen for Dropbox we're both using Microsoft Teams or Slack. We're both using Zoom. You know, the people who show up on my screen every day are a little different. Are we going to have a weaker connection? Are we going to have less loyalty? Are we going to have less of a team vibe? Are we going to be less innovative because I don't necessarily trust people with my ideas? Am I going to generate fewer ideas? That That's the stuff we don't know. No, I think it's really interesting. And I like that it's not a binary yes or no there. It's certain things are for sure left out, but it's not a zero. It's not a, a one or zero. Uh, So another question I have for you for guests like Celeste and guests like Mark Cuban or Dennis Rodman or these people that have very decorated and diverse and kind of strange backgrounds. This is something I was struggling with when preparing for this interview with you with someone with just so many things in their life story. How do you find a starting point for for researching them and determining what you want to learn from a conversation with that person? Because I mean, Robert Greene, Ryan Holiday, there's a million directions you could go. Uh, How do you even start researching when you're given that opportunity? Yeah, that's a good question. So it really depends. Like, is there a bio of the person? Am I looking at a general that has a biography? If so, I just read that first. And then after I'm done with that, I'll look at Wikipedia. I'll Google the news about them. If there isn't one, you know, Robert Greene doesn't have a biography. So I'll read his latest work. Then I'll read the reviews on Amazon of that work. I'll look at the Wikipedia. I'll look at any sort of interviews that he has anywhere else. Because I'll tell you, there's a book called Steal Like an Artist by Austin Kleon. He's a buddy of mine. 
I will routinely listen to other interviews that people have done and I'll go, okay, that was pretty good. I want to take that bit, that bit, and that bit, because those were like the most interesting bits of that. I'm going to take that and put that in mind, and then I'll listen to another one. I'll take some bits from there, and then I'll take the rest from my own research, and then people will go, wow, I can't believe you found all that stuff. And I'm like, well, I was standing on the backs of these other journalists that did a bunch of the initial work, or these other podcasters that did a bunch of the initial work, and then I came up with my own questions, and then I went through the work so you can start where other people have already left off, right? And you can piggyback on their work. What you don't want to do is just listen to three interviews that somebody's done on other shows, write down exactly what those people talked about, and then just redo the same interview. That's derivative. It's not that interesting. You're not really going to get the same quality of answer. You're, you know, it's, you really do need to do the work on your own. But if there's a bio, read it. Otherwise, read their latest work if they don't have any books and it's all about previous interviews and news. So you can always figure out where to start. But yeah, you don't want to start with the latest news on somebody if they've got a bio out. You want to get a firm background on that person first because then you can see the news through their eyes. You know, if you read the news first and then you're like, oh, this guy's a scumbag. Look at this thing mm -hmm. he did. And then you read the bio, you're going to go through the whole bio where he's talking about his childhood being like, yeah, but he's a scumbag. It doesn't really... It's not good. You want to get the background first because then you're coming at it from sort of the same perspective as they were when this the latest event happened to them, right? You know their their past, their history. That's important. Yeah, so that's difficult with with guests like Billy McFarland who, you know, is shrouded in the in the light of the Fire Festival. But one of my questions and what I wanted to ask you kind of like you know, you're interviewing people who have biographies, right? So are there people or is there one person that you think of when you think of a, a very fascinating person that you've interviewed that is under the radar and it was kind of hard to research and hard to find out information about them? Oh, yeah. I mean, let me think. There have to be plenty of folks like that. I think a lot of the folks that are the toughest are going to be some of these criminals because they don't necessarily have a biography. Mm. Um, maybe they spent their entire life in the mafia. So I can't just be like, Hey, introduce me to a few of your friends. I want to get some backstory. You know, they're like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to introduce you to the boss, you know, John Gotti or something like that. Who's in prison, you know, like I'm not going to introduce you to these other guys that were there when I did these heinous crimes. So there's some of that. And then I have to look at things like old police reports or crime reports or look at true crime things that he's appeared in tangential, like that, that person hasn't maybe even appeared in, but that his name appears in it, then I got to go talk to that person. So that's more like investigative type stuff, right? You're doing real research where you're talking to a journalist who wrote about these nine murders in Brooklyn in the 80s. And I'm like, hey, do you remember this? And they're like, oh, yeah, I remember that. And I'm like, do you know anything about this guy? Like Tommy Knuckles? Oh, yeah, it's this guy. You know, you're going to want to read up more on this crime family. And then I'm going through that and I go, okay. Maybe this guy was a member of this crime family. He was according to this. Let me start there. And then I go, yeah, you know, so were you Gambino or Columbo? Well, it was both. You know, it's like, okay, good. Now I got research. That is is interesting, but far more time consuming. You know, like the low-hanging fruit is send me your bio <laughs> and like let me go from there. Um, sometimes I do a pre-interview call where I ask some small questions and I go, okay, so you're in a crime family, right? Yeah, well, I was in two crime families. Okay, let me, right, he was in two crime families. I'll get that on the show. All right, what are you not willing to talk about? I'm not going to incriminate myself. Okay, I'll leave that up to you what that sounds like. Can we talk about this? Uh, can we talk about this? Can we talk about this? Great, okay. And then I just kind of go into it thinking, all right, fingers crossed. He's in a good mood. He's open and willing to talk about it. I got maybe one story from the news and, 
that I'm going to say. And uh, with a lot of folks like that, with like these these um, criminal types or former criminals, one of the best things I found you can do, especially with mafiosi is, or former mafiosi, is tell them something that's wrong. So I'll go. Yeah, you know, I was doing some reading and I came across this guy that you know he doesn't like from another crime family. And he said that, you know, you guys never even really had anything going in Brooklyn in the 70s, that you mostly were operating during the 80s. And they'll go, that's a bunch of bullshit. I was the main guy in the Brooklyn in the 80s. You know, I'll tell you, <laughs> I kneecapped that guy's cousin. That's why he's got it out for me. And I'm like, cool. And I'm just winding him up and letting him go. And, you know, that episode, this is a real guy, by the way. I'm not just making this up. That accent and everything is like this real guy that's coming out in the next few weeks in the Jordan Harbinger show. And I didn't have much info about him. And I would just say things that were slightly wrong and just sit back and let him angrily <laughs> correct me for two hours. And, and that that's how you get those things going. You Sometimes you got to use elicitation techniques like an FBI interrogator has to do to get people to to tell you what you want on the show, you know, to tell you to, to open up, you know, otherwise they're going to be cagey. And it's like, why'd you even show up in the first place if you didn't want to talk to me? Because they do want to talk to you. That's a, that's a pro tip that is extremely interesting. I'm going to have to think over that one a little bit. I have a tangentially related question, uh, which is, so some of these guests are hard to learn about because of the nature of their past or just, you know, they haven't been written about yet. I have a question about getting interviews with people who brand themselves purposefully on being reclusive. So Cal Newport, for example, is famous for never being on social media, you know, has, if you want to get in front of him, like your best bet is snail mail. For someone who's branded around being reclusive uh, and difficult to reach on purpose, how do you go about making those interviews happen? Warm introductions is the best way to do that. Look, a lot of people are reclusive, Cal Newport, you know, right? Um, he's a buddy of mine. I don't remember exactly how we got in touch. There's a couple things here. So warm introductions are the best, you know, Hey, how do I get in touch with Kyle? Oh, well, I know this guy, Lewis, and I, he does a show with Kyle. So I'm going to ask him cause we went to yeshiva together and what our Hebrew school, I don't know, whatever, like, you know, we're going to, we're going to be able to make that connection that way. But if that doesn't work, or even if the person says, you know, he just, He's not going to want me to introduce you. He's a busy guy. He's reclusive. Look, it even says reclusive at the top of his website. He doesn't want to talk to anyone. You wait for a media window. And that was something that I don't know why it took me so dang long to learn, but you wait for that, right? You wait for them to have a book. And you can find out on Amazon or from publishers. You say, hey, who's coming out in 2021? And it's like, oh, Cal Newport. Oh, he's got a book coming out in November 2021. I'm making this up, by the way. I don't think he does, but I have no idea. You know, you go, oh, great, good. When's he going to be doing media for that? And the publicist or the publisher will say, oh, I don't know, not till, we're not even going to look at this until March. And then, you know, we'll start making the media schedule in May. And then he's going to do the interviews in, I don't know, July, whatever it is. So you, you say, okay, great. Do you mind if I mail you back in March? And they go, great, no problem. So you keep in touch with that person. And then that person will eventually reach out during an appropriate window, hopefully schedule an interview with the person that you want. They're forced, they're forced to respond to their publisher because they got to sell books, right? They got to do some. Then you do the show. They go, hey, this is pretty good. People tweeted back at me or emailed back at me and said that they heard it and they liked it. So you're not a waste of time. You're going on my list as not a waste of time podcast, you know? And then 
you say, great, you know, this was really tough to schedule. Do you have a direct email that I can use for next time? And then they say, yeah, sure. It's Jordan at jordanharbinger.com. Just hit me there. You don't have to go through my publisher next time. No problem. And then you're on the short list, right? So, so when I want Adam Grant or something like that on the show and I hear he's got a new book, I just email Adam and he goes, great, Cindy, make it happen. And then I've got the whole back door, right? I don't have to knock on the publicist who emails the assistant who then emails the in-house publicist and sets it all up. I, I go from the top and then he says, do this. And then I skip everybody else who's in line, drop right into the top. And that's the way you want to be doing this. First, usually you have to knock on the door unless you have a warm introduction um, but finding a media window, getting a good media contact, and then later on during the interview or after going, Hey, look, just in case you publish with someone else next time, what's the best way to reach you? Oh, it's, you know, malcolmgladwell.com, whatever it is, you know, those are the contacts that you want to get. Because if you just go through the publisher, that person's got 50 clients, they switch jobs three months afterwards. They're not going to be there for 20 years, 10 years, like they used to be back in the day. So get direct contact information, but you're not going to be able to get that before you meet them in person. You basically want to, during the interview, almost put them on the spot and go, hey, who's the best person? Do you, know, do you have an assistant? Can I reach out to you next time? And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Reach out. Jen at jordanharbinger.com. It's my wife. She'll, she'll make sure we do this again. Like, that's how you do that. That's how I do that. Um, but yeah, there is an element of first email the publisher. Publisher emails the assistant. Assistant emails the in-house publicist. Publicist in-house sets up the Zoom call, and then you're, you know, three months later, if you're lucky, you're in front of the person. I think that's a lot of the benefit of being in it for the long haul, to have the patience to say, all right, well, Cal Newport, if we keep this podcast for five years, he will eventually publish a book, and when that happens, we'll be ready to act. I bet you he's got a book coming out soon. I mean, he's what got else a time walk any... planner coming out in November. There you go. I, yeah. So, really, in November? It's not a book. It's a workbook. That's, per that's a perfect time because a lot of the so workbooks are kind of a, a, a good hack because if they come out with a calendar or a workbook or a paperback journal. edition or a journal, a lot of the big media doesn't necessarily care. Right. They're not going to get like a New York Times profile about, hey, this book that's been out for a year in hardcover now has a paperback. Hey, this book that's been out for a year, now there's a workbook or a calendar to go with it. It's just not a big enough release for a lot of major media. But they're still doing media because they still want to sell this thing and make money, and the publisher still needs to recoup their investment. So they're still doing media. There's just less demand for it. So anytime you see something like that, then you go for it. Now, huge names often won't do media for their paperback, like Matthew McConaughey, probably not going to be doing any media for paperback. But somebody like Cal Newport, almost certainly doing media for this new workbook, but almost certainly also not going to be nearly as booked as he was before. And is going, all right, I got to do some press for this thing. Don't necessarily love doing it, but I blocked off the month of November to just talk about this thing on podcasts and radio. So that's that's when you get in. That that's a great media window. There's less competition. Oh, well, we will get on that. <laughs> get on. Absolutely. Yeah, it's we're just the time. If it comes out, if it comes out next month, you email them today. Or the oh, publicist, of Lewis or whoever, be on it for yeah. sure. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, what interview have you had to fight the hardest for? You know, the most intermediaries, warm connection after warm connection, trying to get them, and then you finally landed it. Ooh, that's interesting. There are a lot that are really hard to get, but it's never the ones you would expect. It'll be like, 
oh, how do I get this random scientist that does n media never? And it's like, oh, I know his lab tech. Okay. Oh, yeah, he doesn't do podcasts, but I'll ask his w assistant. Oh, yeah, he doesn't really do media, but I'll ask his wife because I'm having lunch with her today. Oh, okay. Yeah, he said he's interested, but circle back in November. And then it's over and over and over and over again. And then you get the person on and they're like, why'd you want to interview me so dang bad? And you're like, oh, I loved your book and this and that and the other thing. And they're like, oh, okay, whatever. I don't know how podcasts work. Those are the toughest people to get on there. Everybody thinks like, oh, it must have been so hard to get Kobe Bryant. No, I got an email one day that said, hey, do you want to interview Kobe Bryant? And I was like, obviously, yes. Uh, <laughs> when? And they were like, great. How about in two weeks? And that was it. That was like the easiest. I've never. It takes me longer to get my parents on the phone half the time than it did to go down and sit in front of Kobe Bryant for an hour. So you'd be surprised, you know, at, at what it is. It Billionaire types are often pretty tough. Like, look, Mark Cuban, I literally emailed and was like, can we do this? And he was like, yeah, let's set it up for Wednesday. That was it. Right. But but other billionaire types like Steven Schwartzman from Blackstone, that was like the publicist hit the internal. But then that person left and then hit back. And then I tried again. And then that person had another assistant. And then the assistant routed me to the tech person who routed me to the social media person who routed me to the other media person who routed me to his in-house tech person. Then he changed <laughs> locations and we had to do that all over again. And it was just like over and over and over and over again. And even during the interview, or sorry, right before the interview, it was like, we got to do another sound check with another person because he's not actually in this house today. He's in the other house. It's just one thing after another. And it wasn't like diva stuff. He just, you know, had a meeting and he's like, okay, I'm going to fly my helicopter to my penthouse in Manhattan instead of being in Nantucket or whatever. I mean, you know. Billionaire lifestyle. I can't really identify. I don't know what the deal is. He was moving around. Those are tricky just because the logistics are always a pain. Rarely is it somebody's just so hard to get. It's usually just they're so busy. Mm -hmm. Very rarely is it that they're hard to get. I mean, there's some of that, but you'd be surprised. Celebrities know that in order to sell stuff, they need media most of the time. Um, and a lot of it's luck. A lot of it's timing. You know, you can try and get somebody for years and years and years and then your friend cold emails them one week and they book and you go, what the hell? And they go, yeah, you should got a book coming out in three weeks. And I go, how did I miss that? You know, so it's it's 90 percent timing. Yeah, that's great, uh, especially that last piece about, you know, it's you, I think I read an article on your website about this kind of the fatal attribution error where we all want to take it personally uh, when someone yeah. says no to us. But more often than not, it's really they'd love to do it. I mean, you have a great podcast. You have a lot of audience. They're just literally they're, they're just busy. Uh, but I have a follow-up question. Uh, something that, you know, everyone said to us and everyone says about podcasts in general and every book I'll, I'll read on the topic is the idea of a customer avatar in a niche. And Kyle and I more or less have the same show purpose as you in the sense where we just are fascinated by fascinating people. We want to interview them about what makes them fascinating and, you know, share the best of that and encourage others to learn from it and take practical action from that. So how would you describe your, your dream customer or your customer avatar? Like who's the perfect listener of your show? Yeah, I'm making it for people who are reasonably educated, but not like academic or intellectuals, right? People who are curious and they're they're interested in hearing what an arms trafficker or mafioso has to say, but also they want to hear from the national security advisor. They also want to hear from an astronaut. They also want to hear from uh, a journalist or an FBI interrogator about conversations. Like those people who who are really going wow, what interesting sort of fascinating person are we going to learn from? 
I don't talk about pop culture. I don't talk about celebrity gossip. I don't talk about news. I don't talk about politics. News with a little asterisk, right? Like I'm going to talk about Russian election interference or the conflict in Azerbaijan or something like or Iran, but not like, did you see what Trump did or did not do today or the other day? Like that stuff's not interesting for me because it's short-term thinking and it's it's essentially just reality TV for people that think that they're too good for reality TV. I don't really do that. Um, I do sort of deep dives. And that's for people who want to do deep thinking or listen to deep conversations that aren't overly intellectual. So it's usually an educated audience. A lot of the people live on the coast. They're college educated. They're employed. Um, a lot of knowledge workers, so doctors, lawyers, engineers, uh, and nurses and doctors and things like that are in the medical field, but are also sort of on similar par. Um, but it really does run the gamut. I mean, I I get letters all the time from people who are mining for gold or digging in the tar sands in in Canada. So it I I speak clearly and I speak for the everyman, but I also read a lot. So I try to be. I try to talk in a way that is that anyone can understand and I make my guests do the same thing, but also somebody who's well read. So that way, you know, you don't have to have a PhD in English to understand what the heck people are saying uh, or philosophy. And you also are going to get something out of it, even if you do. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And that's how we want this show to be for, for our audience. I think we're, we're less defined in that. And I think that our conversations just usually end up being that because we haven't gone to law school. We're not doctors. You know, uh, it's, it's definitely what we want to do is, is talk to everybody. But mm -hmm. that's actually a question that I wanted to ask you is how did law school, because it's something that I'm, you know, sort of considering, how did that change your worldview? Law school showed me that there, man, it changed my worldview in a lot of ways, actually, now that I think about it. It's hard to even pin sort of one thing. But I learned from a lot of very, very smart next-level thinkers that were extreme go-getters, especially at Michigan. You know, it was, I think, like the number six law school in America, like top 10 law school in America or something like that. I mean, it was I was just completely outmatched by the wits of my colleagues. They are so smart and so well-educated, and they went on to do some great things. And the professors that we had there are judges now, or, or you know, even the students that we had there are probably judges in, in some places, and that's just incredible. So to see the breadth of human potential and the, the, the causes people cared about in an institution like Michigan really did, as cliche as it, sound, as it sounds, expand my horizons and be like, wow, there aren't people here. There look, there are people here who are just thinking about going to Wall Street and making money. But there are also people that are like, it's inherently unfair that this is going on and I'm going to change that. And I'm like, why how, what makes you think you can do that? And sure enough, these are just badass people that can go and start nonprofits and get attention globally for a cause and just change actually change the way that something works in America or in the world. And that that's it, that's inspiring because it makes you a bigger thinker. Right. You don't just go like, oh, I'm just trying to get by, man. You go, well, if my friend from law school who's smart, but not like not untouchable, you know, we were in a study group together. If this person can do that, then I can probably do this other thing that is just demonstrably a smaller goal. Right. Like, I, I of course, I can do that. I, I was I was in the same room. I was studying with this person for three years. You know, of course, I can do that. So it, it raises your confidence level 
um, while at the same time, in many ways, humbling you because, you know, <laughs> you're just around smart people all the time. And you just, you just like, I was in awe of a lot of the people I went to school with. Some of the people were absolutely brilliant. I think this podcast serves a very similar purpose for us where we're surrounding ourselves by people that, you know, increase our sense of possibility every week. Uh, and then also it's humbling because some of them just do insane stuff. Like episode number seven was one of my friends who got a software developer job at like 17 and like barely knew how to code. And he's like, just give me 30 days. I'll be the best guy in here. Then went like balls to the wall study all day for like a month and then like literally was promoted a senior engineer. It's like, you just hear story or story like that week after week. Uh, and it increases our sense of possibility, but it's also like some of these people are just absolutely ridiculous and absolutely extreme. Uh, and it's mm -hmm. fun. It's, it's entertaining and cool. Uh, yeah. so I have a question for you about, uh, kind of this whole genre, right? Like asking successful people, asking hardcore people for advice. Uh, one thing that you do that I think is really awesome with your show is you put together worksheets uh, do you know of a listener, uh, well, let me give some more context here. So you put together worksheets that, you know, maybe a five to six page summary of what was in every episode, a couple questions for reflection and implementing the ideas. And I think that's crucially important for actually leading to behavior change and people benefiting from this advice. Uh, but I looked through some of those worksheets and prep for this. And I'm like, there are literally like 250 to 400 of these things. Do you mm -hmm. know of a listener, like a story or an anecdote of someone who's just gone through and like done almost all of them and like where they're at? Do you have like a most extreme fan who... Cause I don't know if you can see like a student's progress. Like they've done 75% of your material. Cause it's like a teachable style huh. program where you can see, you know, your progress. I, I think that there probably is that inside thinkific where the worksheets are kept, but I don't know if it's something that I can look at. I think they can pull that data. And I think we've been asking for a while, like, Hey, can you show us who's done the most logins? Who's done the most of this course? And they're like, we don't have that yet. So they're working on that, which I think is important. But there are a lot of letters that come in that say, hey, I listened to your series on negotiation and I'm, I'm up $30,000 from where I started you know, a few years ago. Or people say, you know, I listened to this and then I took these tools and I started a company and the company's worth $18 million now. Or, and that's an extreme example, of course, but you know, it, it still counts. Or people saying, hey, I listened to this and I thought about this and I've been listening to you for a while and then I went and did this other thing and now I live in... Egypt doing this cool thing. And I grew up in Montana. So thank you. So it really does sort of expand people's thinking. And when you apply the things that you learn on the Jordan Harbinger show, you know, each episode is supposed to teach you something that you can use. So, or just serve as an example, you know, if you're listening to a mafia enforcer or a jewel thief, um, but you'll still learn lessons from that, that you can use that type of thing is very common because otherwise, why not just listen to true crime all day? Why, li why listen to the Jordan Harbinger show if you don't want to actually improve? You know, I'm not necessarily going to be coming at you like some sort of life coach uh, or anything, but you're going to learn and you're going to want to apply the things that you have. And so the show does attract those kind of doers and go-getters and people who are career focused. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and in listening, I can tell that that's the, the audience that you're going after. For sure. Um, but speaking about uh, specific examples of ways to kind of change your life, um, do you have a specific um, powerful practical tool for improving your ability to influence others? Oh, yeah, I think there's a yeah, there's a lot, honestly, influence other people. Oof. Yeah. Um, learning things like elicitation, which is a, an, inter an interrogation skill, it's extremely helpful. 
not just because you're going to be interrogating people, but because you're going to get better information out of the people that you have conversations with. I mean, those are the techniques I'm sort of talking about before where mm-hmm. I said, you know, I'll say something that's wrong and then I'll get corrected. You know, that's a conversation technique that comes from essentially an interrogator um, in a set of interrogation, learning things like negotiation techniques. Those will get you more money. They'll get you better contract terms, whatever it is that you want, better positions, better projects at work, things like that. Um, But also just being able to communicate very clearly is extremely helpful, not just be some sort of charismatic speaker, but to really communicate what it is that you want, being able to communicate your own value that you bring to say your company or organization. If you can communicate that very clearly, that's convincing and influencing. A lot of people think influence and convincing is like persuading someone or marketing really hard. That's sort of like white belt, green belt stuff. When you get to the advanced stuff, the uh, black belt, brown belt stuff, that is when you're just like, here's what I've done. Like, okay, let me, let me use an analogy to be more clear. If you're early in the game, the green belt in the game, you go to your boss and you say, hi, um, I know it's my performance review and I really, you know, I'm glad you said I did a good job. I would like a raise. And they go, uh, okay, we'll consider that. And you go, okay, cool. Thanks. Bye. Right. If you know what you're doing, Six months before your performance review, you're talking with your boss and you're going, hey, okay, so here's what I have planned for these projects for the rest of the year. I'm going to be doing this, 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 and this. Here's what I've projected. These, of course, can get adjusted later on. Uh, We'll see. But it looks like this is going to do this. This is going to do that. This is actually going to end up saving us a bunch of money. And I would love to have this created. I'm going to start by doing a spreadsheet that does it. But later on, maybe we can have somebody in IT actually automate this. That's going to save 30 hours a month uh, of time, which given the average salary around here is X dollars. And the boss goes, wow. And then you check in and you say that you're hitting your milestones. And then when your performance review comes up, you say, so I actually achieved all of this. And instead of saving 30 hours, we're saving 27. So we were pretty damn close. I want to have this automated. It's going to save 27 hours of time. Uh, If everybody here is making billing out at $280 an hour, now you have capacity to bill that person out at $280 an hour for another project. Their salary of that was going to be $100 an hour. That's $2,700 every month. And so that's going to save us over the course of a year. Dang it, I just backed myself into a math problem. Uh, (laughs) Let's say $35,000 or something along those lines, right? It's going to save the company. I'm not going to ask for a $35,000 raise, but I think it is more than fair for me to receive instead of a 5% raise, which would be $10,000, I think I should receive a $20,000 or $25,000 raise somewhere in there because I'm going to be automating all of this and running this project myself. And then the boss goes, wow, you literally just did the math. Now they have to justify why you don't deserve that out of care. It's sort of like extra large raise or bonus. And now it's on them to tell you why you don't deserve that when you know mathematically just straight up doing the math that you do. Um, You won't always have a mathematical example like that. You might say, I saved X hours. I earned this, this cinched this client. Uh, But you can warm your boss up, show them what you're going to do, show them what you did do, ask for the raise and prove that you deserve it instead of just going, please give me a raise, which is what most people do. So those types of things are far more, that type of communication is far more influential Uh, And so having a skill set where you are able to outline what you're going to do, document what you're going to do and communicate clearly the benefit to someone else, that's how you really crush 
in your office, at your job, whatever it is that you're doing, not like learning NLP hypnosis to persuade people. Like that is all, that's all kind of like the magic wand formula for influence. And it's just not very realistic. And it gets you like 5% of the way there instead of 95% of the way there. I think that's a extremely common thread on our podcast in general is uh, taking the fundamental approach to just about doing anything in any situation you are going to be better served by just getting good at the thing than trying to take the hacky approach. It's, 100%. Look, yeah, everyone looks for these hacks. Almost every single interview. People look for these hacks and it's like, this one quick, three weird tricks, scientists hate them. And it's like, like diet and exercise, right? Everyone knows that diet and exercise are how you lose weight. And it's not even exercise. It's just really diet. It's like 90% diet and then 10% exercise. Uh, if, you know, genetics and things like that aside, sure. but you're never going to be able to sell anything like that. So you say, turns out eating potatoes is the way to lose a hundred pounds. <laughs> Only eat potatoes. I'll try it's it. just r ridiculous. Right. Or like you really need this green supplement. That's going to keep you focused and sharp and, and everything. It's like insurance. Yeah, it's nutritional insurance, but it's like, hmm, maybe you don't need nootropics to focus at work. Maybe you need to get more than five hours of sleep. Oh, well, that's not sexy and takes time. So now I don't want to do that. I want to have nootropics. Okay, cool. But it's not going to get you there. Absolutely. So I have another question here. Uh, Naval Ravikant, if you're familiar with him, has this line that, you know, if you get enough advice, it all cancels to zero. Uh, so something I'm curious about having, you know, you've done 300 plus podcast interviews just on your current show. And then over decades, I'm sure hundreds more than that. When you bring on extreme people like Jocko, and, and then you bring on people on the other extreme who are, you know, natures and surrealists and peaceful and everything else. Like, do you find that you get a lot of conflicting advice and how do you kind of, you know, resolve that when you bring on extreme people from both ends of the spectrum to, to still be useful and not just being directing people, be as hardcore as possible, live in the moment, take deep breaths, go hard, don't go hard. Like, how do you, how do you resolve yeah. that? I actually, I, I look at what's, a so I go to down to, what do they call it? First principles, I guess is what you'd say. So I go, I look at Jocko and I go, okay, why is this person successful? It's not always what they say. That's not always the reason you have to use critical thinking and critical thinking is a huge part of what we teach on the Jordan Harbinger show. Right? So like, I look at Jocko and I go, why is he successful? Okay. Super intense. And he does a lot and he works a lot because of that intensity. And that intensity is his brand and everything. And I go, but is that really the only reason? Do I have to be that intense to get something done? And the answer is no. That works really well. And it works really well for him. And it and so and he's naturally like this, or he's built his nature into that over time. So he leverages that. But then I look at myself and I go, well, I'm highly organized and I have a lot of energy and I can stay focused for a really, really long time. Uh, if I, if I know, if I can channel my focus into the, the, the place it wants to be, like, it's not that I just sit there and work. I know that I've got to get up and go for a walk and read and then sit down and do email and then do this other, right? So if, if you know yourself really well, then you can go, all right, I'm going to get up early like Jocko, but then I'm going to go to bed early. Like, I don't know, Cal Newport or something right that, like that. Right. Because I need, I know I need to get enough sleep. Jocko operates on very little sleep. And he told me that, and he knows he needs to get more sleep. And I bet you, if we do a brain scan, we can see the effects of a lack of sleep on somebody like him, but he, he just powers through it and drinks his uh, white tea, you know, uh, his Jocko teas. So I look at that and I go, okay, but the intensity isn't the only reason why he's successful and nor is it the only reason that anyone else can also become successful. Cal Newport, he limits distractions. He does a lot of deep work. 
great. I love doing that. I'm totally for that. Everything that he says so far is right. But is he getting up at 4.30 in the morning and like powerlifting? No, but he's also successful. How can this be? Well, it turns out there's more than one path to being able to do what you want. So you also have to choose what you want to do, right? If you're an athlete, nobody, nobody in their right mind is going to tell an athlete, hey, man, don't worry about sleep. Just get up early, go to bed late, work a ton on all this other stuff. Don't worry about sleep. That's ridiculous. If you're an athlete and you're training for a fight, you're probably in bed at like 8 p.m., maybe earlier. And then you're up early working out and, and training. And, you know, you're doing altitude stuff. Do I need to do altitude training for what I'm doing? No, not at all. So I'm going to train in the way that gets me to where I want to go. And so you have to be really aware of what that is. Do I want to be able to do deep work? Yes. So I do. I take pages out of Cal Newport's book and I make sure that I do that. Do I want to be able to hit certain goals? Yes. So maybe I Maybe I'm a morning person, so I'm gonna. I'm like, you know what? Screw it. Let me get up early like Jocko and get a lot more done in the day. Pull my miracle morning. Do that. But if that's not working for me, I'm not gonna try and cram the square peg through the round hole. I'm gonna take pages from what people are who, from what people are doing and doing well in the same result that I want to get or a similar result that I, I should say that I want to get right. If I hire a personal trainer and they're fat as hell and they're eating Doritos while they're stretching me out. That's not a good sign, right? If I hire a personal trainer and I say, hey, you know, how did you get so fit? And they go, oh, I've always been skinny. Next, right? That's not a person I necessarily want to work with. I want to work with somebody who knows how to get somebody like me where I want to go. Now, look, naturally skinny personal trainer might be great. They might work with clients like me all the time that want to lose 10 pounds and are stiff as a board. That doesn't mean they're not qualified. But what it does mean is, do I want to model myself after th what they are doing? Not necessarily, right? There's a difference between being coached by somebody who's an expert coach and modeling yourself after somebody. Jocko's not an expert coach. Well, yeah, he kind of is. I mean, he's, he's trained people before. So let me pick a different example. Cal Newport is a teacher and an educator. Modeling myself after what he says, good idea. Modeling myself after what he does, good idea. There are plenty of people that have succeeded at something that I would never model myself after. Um, I don't want to name names because it can come across as pretty pejorative and negative, but there are plenty of people I'm sure that you can think of that have done something well, but you think, I definitely don't want to be that person. David Goggins. Look at yeah, yeah, look at David Goggins. And and he's done things that people are okay with. Imagine the CEO, uh, for, or sorry, founder of Uber. Do you want to be doing everything that that person has done? He is. He got removed from the company, from a huge multi-billion dollar company, because the board, which was making money hand over fist in one of the biggest, fastest growth companies in the world, just went, okay, we, can't, we just can't sweep this under the rug anymore. Look at American Apparel. I, they're not even around anymore because the CEO was a crazy person who ran it into the ground. But in the beginning, you'd go, look what he's doing. He's making this great apparel locally in the United States. Let me model myself after him. Now, what did he, didn't he go to prison for a while? I mean, come on. You know, yeah. so there's a difference between taking someone's advice and finding out what works for you and modeling yourself after what that person is actually doing. <laughs> and those are very different things. Yeah, I, I love the quote, all advice is autobiographical. I think that that sums up what you're saying well, mm -hmm. but you know, we, we really appreciate your time today. If our listeners listen and they want to, they want to check you out and, and see what you're up to, where should we send them? Sure. Listen to the Jordan Harbinger show. I look, I'm at Jordan Harbinger on Twitter and Instagram, but I'm not posting there. I, 
funnily enough, I do my deep work. I do the podcast, the Jordan Harbinger show. Some of it's on YouTube. Most of it's not. Um, but go and listen to this podcast, the Jordan Harbinger show and tell me if you like it. Um, but don't expect me to be doing stories on my Instagram from the airport lounge. You know, I do, uh, I, there's a reason that I don't do that stuff. I focus on what matters and the podcast is what matters. Well, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks guys. Really appreciate it. And that wraps up our interview with Jordan Harbinger. Uh, really cool to, to get him on and be able to talk to somebody who's just so high in the field that we are uh, trying to break into. And, you know, he gave me some tips about law school that I'm going to have to think about some practical advice for, for persuasion and influence that I, I want to implement into my own life um, in order to have a, a bigger impact. And, you know, we just had a lot of fun with him. He told us a lot of fun stories and, and it was a great interview. I agree. I had a pretty similar experience having been on, on the same call, obviously, if you could believe that. Uh, my biggest takeaway is that it's really not all that different at the top of the game in terms of strategy and day to day. Yeah, I mean, he has a six figure marketing budget. He has a team of six people doing production and helping put together different aspects of the show. Uh, but really, you know, when I asked how he gets the hard to reach interviews, he said more often than anything else, it's a combination of clever timing and a warm introduction. So it's the relationships game through and through, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, he focuses obviously on having fun and you can tell how much he enjoys this kind of work. Uh, and one piece of advice he gave to us, he said, you know, I think it will be successful. It just might take a long time. Uh, I, you know, having researched this podcast, compared myself to him in probably some unhealthy ways, I'm like, damn, he had Cal Newport in like episode 50 and Alex Benign in like episode 20. And he's had Ryan Holiday in 25 times. And I'm like, that's amazing. Like, how do you do that? Like, how do you go from zero to hundred and like immediately? And then it's, well, he was already podcasting for 11 years before starting the Jordan Harbinger show. So he had them on episode zero, one, two, three, four of the Jordan Harbinger show, but probably closer to episode 700 of my name is Jordan Harbinger. I exist in the podcasting world. I have a lot of cool friends. Uh, so it's never a good idea to compare yourself to other people. I don't know about that, but at least take in the full context of the situation. Uh, it's not, it's good for me to be motivated to set the bar higher maybe and like, you know, shoot for the stars, uh, but not to feel down about not getting Jocko and David Goggins in episodes two, three, and four. Uh, because it's truly episode two, three, and four for us, whereas for him it's episodes 800, 900, 1,000. So uh, I found that to be very valuable. And most of the time you don't have that full context until you can actually reach out to the other person and let them hear their story because everyone just wants to make it look as impressive as possible uh, on you know the social media version of, of themselves. Uh, so I thought this was fantastic. I am so glad we were able to get them on. I enjoyed that so much. Uh, I hope you all did as well. This, I'm going to sign us off now with the typical calls to action. The number one thing you can do to help a podcast grow, doesn't matter if it's the Jordan Harbinger show and there's thousands and thousands of five-star reviews or if it's the Lewis and Kyle show and we're somewhere in the mid-50s, the most helpful thing you can do for us by far is leaving a rating or review on iTunes if you haven't already. And if you already have and you really want to help us out, just grab your friend's phone and leave it from their phone. You can do it twice. It's allowed. I'm cool with it. Uh, other than, otherwise, if you want to keep up with us and what we're up to, you can follow us on the social media channels by searching for The Lewis and Kyle Show. Make sure you subscribe to our show if you haven't already, so you're automatically notified of new updates and reach out to us. Give us some feedback. We'd love to hear your take on what we're doing. If you like the types of questions we're asking, if you like the format we're taking the show, uh, we're making this for ourselves, but we're also making it for you all to listen to it, enjoy it, and get value out of it. So we'd love to hear from you. That is all for this week. We'll see you in another one with a new episode. Thanks so much for listening to our episode with Jordan Harbinger, and we'll see you soon. Have a good one. Bye-bye.